0: Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma fairers. Once long ago, the Bodhisatta was born as a swan into a flock that lived on the slopes of Mount Chittakuta. Now this was no ordinary swan, for even when very young, just a signet, his downy feathers had a subtle golden hue. His bill was the color of polished black onyx. And his eyes shone like the finest green emeralds. As he grew and fledged into adulthood, he began learning to fly. And soon he became the swiftest of the whole flock. His feathers took on the rich golden hue that sometimes fills the air at sunset when the sky clears after a rain like the color of the aspen leaves in October, after the early frost has come on the slopes of Nuvatukyovi, where the Kachinas dwell. And he was known as Javanahamsa, or swift swan. And his swift flight and clear vision and his deep kindness set him apart from the other birds. And when he reached adulthood, he became the leader of the flock. One day when Javanahamsa and his flock had been eating the wild rice that grew in a certain pool on the plains of northern India, he took to the air and he passed over the great city of Benares. And they say that it was the, as though a golden tapestry were spread across the sky from one end to the, of the city to the other. And then he flew slowly, as if in sport or play, back to the, his home on Chitakuta. Now on that day, the king and queen happened to see the swan and turning to the nobles and courtiers of the palace, they spoke to them saying, that bird is noble, royal. He must be a king. And the king himself took a great fancy to the noble swan and he gathered all kinds of garlands and perfumes and all manner of fine things and set off in search of him. And he brought with him also musicians and various nobles of the court. When Javanahamsa, the great swan, saw the king approaching this way, he turned and spoke to the other birds, saying, When a king does such things, setting forth in this way with gifts and offerings, what does he want? He wants to make friends with you, my lord, said the swans. It is for reasons of friendship that he has come forth in this way. Well then, said the great swan, let me be friends with the king, for friendship is a great boon to anyone who finds it. And so he went forth himself and he made friends with the king, and then he returned to his flock. Now one day not long after this, the king king and the queen went out. They were seeking pleasure and ease in the royal park on the shores of Lake Anotata. And on this occasion, the great swan flew to them, and with water on one wing and powder of sandalwood on the other wing, he flew overhead and gently sprinkled the king and queen with the water. And he also cast the powder of sandalwood upon them from above. And then while the king and queen looked on, he flew away to join his flock on the slopes of Mount Chittakuta. And as he passed overhead, it was as if the skies were draped in a silk cloth of the finest golden color. And from that time on, both the king and the queen thought often of their friend, each in their own way. The king would sometimes linger by his window, watching along the way by which the swan was wont to come. And he thought to himself, perhaps today my comrade will come. Perhaps today I will see my friend. And the queen kept the great swan before her in her thoughts holding him in kindness with the wish for his safety and happiness. And thus she also thought of his flock, for she knew it was not easy to live in the wild. One day two of the very youngest swans, belonging to the flock of Javanahamsa, feeling both strong and full of life, made up their minds to fly a race with the sun. And they went to their leader and, telling him of their plan, begged his leave and permission to do this. My dear ones, he said, looking on them fondly, the sun's speed is very swift and you will never be able to race with him. You will only tire yourselves and perish in the attempt and so I ask you not to go. A second time they asked and again the great swan said, do not go. And even again they asked, but the Bodhisatta withstood them once more, even up to the third time of asking. But they were fully set upon their plan for they were young and knew not the limits of their strength. And so they resolved to fly with the sun without permission. And gathering themselves in the early dawn light, they took their places on the top of Mount Yugandhara, And there they waited for the sun. Upon waking the great being, Javanahamsa missed them. And turning to the rest of the flock, he asked where they had gone. And when he heard what had happened, he thought, they will never be able to race with the sun. They will perish in the course. I must try to save their lives. So he too went to the peak of Yugandara, and he sat down beside them. And then, just as the sun crested the shoulder of that great peak, the young swans rose into the air and darted forward along with the sun, and the great being flew forward with them. The youngest of the two birds flew on until mid-morning, and then began to grow faint. And he felt as if a red-hot brand were being stabbed into the joints of his wings. And with each wingbeat, that feeling grew stronger. And he called out to the Great One saying, Brother, I can't do it. Fear not, said the Great Swan, I will save you. And taking him up on his outspread wings, he soothed him and conveyed him back to Mount Chittacuta and placed him down gently amidst the flock. Then he flew off, his great wings shining golden in the daylight. Quickly catching up to the sun, he went on side by side with the second of the two young swans, and together they flew with the sun. Until near midday, that swan also began to grow faint, and she felt as though a fire had been kindled in the joints of her wings and was burning there and growing hotter and hotter with each wingbeat. Making a sign to the great golden swan, she cried out, Brother, I cannot do it. Then the great being comforted and soothed the second of the young swans. And taking her on his outspread wings, he bore her safely back to Chitakuta. At that moment, the sun was fully overhead and in his fullness. And Javanahamsa thought, today I will test the sun's strength and speed. He darted back to the peak of Yugandara and perched there for a moment. And then rising with one great swoop, he overtook the sun. And flying now in front, now behind, he thought to himself, for me to race with the sun in this way is profitless and born of mere folly. Away, I will go to Benares, where I can visit and talk Dhamma with my friends, the king and queen. (laughs) Then he took one last turn around the sun for good measure. And before the sun had even moved from the middle of the sky, he traversed the whole world from end to end. Then slackening his speed, he traversed the whole of India from end to end. And coming at last to Benares, he traversed the whole city at such speed It was as if the whole place were under his shadow, without even the smallest gap or crevice. Then as he slowed his speed by degrees, small holes and cracks began to appear in the shadow. The great swamp slowed even further and coming down from the air, alighted on the terrace of the palace in front of one of the windows. Our friend has come, cried the king in great joy for he had been gazing out the window, marveling at the shadow. Then, sending for the queen, he called for a golden seat for the great swan to perch upon and said, come friend, O noble swan, come sit here and rest. You are most welcome. Here and now you are master of this place. Mikasa casa es su casa. <laughs> All things here are yours. Javana Hamsa entered the palace and perched on the golden seat. The king noticed that one or two feathers on the swan's golden body were just a bit ruffled and slightly out of place. And he spoke, saying, How do you fare, dear one? Is everything all right? My lord, replied the swan, It has been a rather busy morning. (laughs) And he carefully preened his golden feathers. Then the queen entered the room, and she spoke not a word, but anointed the golden bird upon his wings, with unguents that were 100 times, nay, even 1000 times refined until his golden feathers glowed like fire, and he raised his golden head to gently caress her hand. The queen offered him sweet rice and sugar water in a golden dish and spoke to him sweetly and gently, saying, good friend, you have come alone. Where have you been this morning, and what have you been doing? The great swan then related the tale in full, and the king said, Dear one, cannot you show me your swiftness against the sun? It must be a wondrous thing to behold. O mighty king, that swiftness cannot be shown. Then cannot you show me something like it? For I would love to see something like that with my own eyes. Very good, O king, I will show you something like it. Summon your most skilled archers, those who can shoot as swift as lightning. And so the king sent for his very best archers, those who had been trained by the famous master of Takasila. And the great swan chose the four strongest of them. And climbing along with them and the king and the queen, they went to the highest tower of the palace. And there, there was a stone pillar upon the platform. He then had the king tie a small golden temple bell about his neck, and he perched on the top of the stone pillar. And he placed the four archers with their backs to the base of the stone column, each facing in one of the four directions away from the base of the column. And he said, O king, let these four men each shoot four arrows at the same time, in four different directions, and I will catch all these arrows before they touch the ground and lay them at your feet. You will know when I leave by the tinkling of this bell, but I shall not be seen. Then, all at one moment, each of the archers shot four arrows, and such was their skill that their movements were just a blur, rather like Prince Five weapons with his bow and arrow. Then the king heard the gentlest tingling of the bell. Looking down, he saw the arrows neatly piled at his feet. And looking up, he saw his friend perched upon the stone pillar, and all of this even before the sound of the bell had finished. Wow, said the king, (laughs) nodding his head in in amazement, awesome. Did you see my speed, O King? Asked the swan. But the king just kept shaking his head. So great was his wonder. The great swan continued, That speed, O King, is not my swiftest, nor even my middle speed. It is my slowest of the slowest speeds. (laughs) My swiftest speed is far greater than that. Then the king asked him, Well, friend, Is there any speed swifter than yours? There is, spoke the swan. Swifter than even my swiftest speed, even a hundredfold, even a thousandfold, nay, even one hundred thousandfold, is the decay of the elements in living beings, just so they fall away, just so they pass. Then he made clear how the world of form arises and ceases, coming into being and passing away moment by moment. Speaking again, the Great One said, but swifter even than that is the speed of thought, for the elements of the body are heavy and slow in arising and passing. But what is immaterial is light to change and quick to cease. It is as if a person were to hit the branch of a tree with a stick in order to knock down some fruits and in so doing loosen both fruits and leaves. The fruits would fall to the ground first because they are heavier and the leaves would arrive later because they are so much lighter. The king, upon hearing this, fell into a swoon, and unable to keep his senses, dropped to the floor in a faint. The queen went to the queen, saying to the swan, The king has always been rather tender and easily overcome. (laughs) Pray do not fear for him. He will rouse momentarily. She then gently sprinkled the king's face with rose water, and she whispered soothingly in his ear and gently brought him around. Then the great being spoke, saying, O great king, fear not, but do remember this. That which is subject to arising is also subject to passing away. This is the nature of things. Cultivate, O king, the perception of impermanence. This will be for your benefit. Short, indeed, is the life of beings, limited and brief. This one should wisely understand, for none who is born can escape death. Walk then, O king, in heedfulness. Refrain from intentionally causing harm. Do what is good and live with care. Thus shall you purify your mind and heart. Then the king answered, saying, My dear friend, without a wise teacher like you, I cannot live happily. I beg you, do not return to Chittakuta, but stay here and instruct me. Be my teacher and my guide. O great swan, come dwell here with us." The Bodhisatta then spoke, saying, "'Ever would I dwell with you, for great is the honor you have thus conferred upon me, and for the sake of friendship too. But perhaps one day, after much wine, you might say to your cooks, broil and bake for me, that royal bird.'" (laughs) No, cried the king. Then never again shall I touch wine or strong drink, nor even shall I eat while you stay with me. To this the great being replied, nay, great king, speak not this way, for you must eat and live the life that is yours, and I must do the same. Then the queen spoke. Dear to me, my friend, is the sight of you, and dearer still is the sound of your voice, but more dear by far is your presence. Still, she continued, I do not ask you to remain, for I know you would not be happy. The ways of men and the ways of birds are different, and you are needed by your flock just as we are needed here. The great bird bowed to her and spoke, saying, For me, the song of birds and even the cry of jackals is understood with ease, and their ways are clear to me. But the words and ways of men often leave me puzzled and confused. I would remain your friend and hold you dear in my heart. And so before I lose your friendship, I will take my leave and return to my home." Then the king spoke, saying, I ask one thing of you then before you leave this place. Come again at any time. Visit here often for welcome here you shall ever be. But the queen only smiled, and taking from her round her neck a simple chain of gold that was hung with a single emerald of the purest green, she placed it about the neck of the golden swan. And as she did so, the chain seemed to melt into the gold of his feathers until only a pure drop of the finest green remained upon his breast. Oh, great one, she said. Take this token of my regard for you and know that you and yours will always dwell in my heart. Then the golden swan said, If nothing comes to snap our life, O king, and for as long as we both shall live, O guardian of your folk, then I shall fly here on occasion for friendship's sake. And so we shall see each other yet as the days and nights go by. And of course I shall come to see the queen." For she is both kind and wise, and she is dear to me. And with this, the great being departed to his home on Chittakutta. So the great swan's speed and his teaching to the king and the queen points to, reminds us of the great importance that the Buddha placed on the perception of impermanence, on deeply opening to this understanding, this truth. And in a way, there's a sense at times we feel that maybe the whole path seems to flow from an ever-deepening relationship to this, this truth, a deepening connection to the truth of change. And in many cases, the Buddha frequently spoke to the power of this understanding. In one place he said, fruitful as is the act of giving, yet it is still more fruitful to go with a confident heart for refuge to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, and to the Sangha, and to undertake the five precepts of virtue. But fruitful as that is, yet it is still more fruitful to maintain loving kindness in one's being for only as long as the time it takes to milk a cow. And fruitful as that is, yet it is still more fruitful to maintain the perception of impermanence for only as long as the snapping of a finger. And in another place, better, than, better a single day of perceiving how things rise and fall than to live for 100 years yet not perceive their rise and fall. And often, the classic description of a moment of awakening is described in terms of the perception of impermanence, often like this. The stainless eye of the Dhamma arose thus. That which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. And we hear teachings on this. We hear these words repeated all the time places like this everything's impermanent and it can become a kind of almost like a philosophical stance or or some concept that we we take on as a good buddhist whatever that is something to say when you hang out at retreat centers If we pro- approach it in the right way, we could say that our meditation is a, is a process of training. We train this um, quality of mindful awareness. It's a simple capacity. We all have, of course. Notice it right now. And over time, we begin to trust this quality of awareness more than the passing show of changing experience. And through this process, just through our willingness to uh, bring this quality of awareness to our life, we start to see how things really are underneath, you could say, the, the level of everyday looking, below the surface appearances that meet our eye in the usual way of seeing things. And so through this, we begin to turn our focus more to uh, universal aspects of all experience, all conditioned things, beginning in some ways with seeing into the impermanent nature of things. We see it is true anything that is subject to arising, anything that takes birth is subject also to passing away. We see this in all kinds of ways. It shows up in different ways. Sometimes very obviously, sometimes on more subtle levels. So we see the obvious seasonal changes. Just over these weeks here, we've seen how it's moved into winter from late summer and fall. We see the way the body changes over the years. The inevitable movement of anything, again that is of the nature to take birth, moves towards aging and ultimately towards death. We see these changes, even though we may like to deny that they're happening. On retreat, we uh, encourage ourselves to pay attention to simple, obvious things like the changing postures of the body as we move through the day, bring mindfulness to reaching and moving about, going and coming, and so forth. And even though there are periods of relative stillness when we sit in formal meditation, most of the time the posture is changing. We sit, we stand, we recline, and everything in between. We walk. And awareness brought to the body in these simple change of postures. This is an aspect of the first establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. And it points to the way that these uh, mundane everyday experiences can serve as a vehicle for our understanding. Right there is the truth of impermanence. The simplest aspect of experience in just daily activities of going through our lives here point directly to this truth and deepening understanding, leading to relinquishment, to letting go, to freedom. We touch the truth of impermanence in the experience of our breath in meditation. It's also part of the first establishment of mindfulness of body. And see that each breath is indeed different from every other one. They're long or short, coarse or fine, subtle or gross. And sometimes in meditation, our experience, our attention draws so close to the breath that we'll see subtle changes within an in-breath, within an out-breath. Sometimes the concept of breath falls away, and we just see this process of change. We see change in terms of our experience of body and sensations that arise there, pass away there. This dance of the elements, you could say. One sensation arising followed immediately by another one. Hardness and softness and movement and tension and vibration, pressure heat, coolness. And if we look, we'll see there's nothing even remotely permanent or lasting in any of that. Constant flux and flow there. And we see sometimes that the the concept of body, our image and feeling of the shape and form and the, the edges of it can fall away and body is just this this uh, flow of arising and dissolving sensations that's what we see this non-conceptual level of materiality in meditation we notice the uh, incredibly insubstantial fleeting nature of thought pulses of mental, mental energy that arise pass away. We see the way that a whole universe, a whole world, is created in the mind. We live there for a time. We're lost in that story, the drama of it. And then, in one moment, it falls away. It seems so real. We were living there for a time. Where did it go? What were we so lost in for that time? So we see in meditation the body, the mind, all aspects of our experience are in this state of change and flux and flow. And we see it over and over, but so much of the time we're lost in the process and the details of our experience. The world of the sense contacts, sights and sounds, and all we think and feel about what's happening, the world of the mind, the world of thoughts and ideas. We get so caught up in what it seems to be saying and what it means about me. And we fall into a kind of fascination with it and we lose sight of this changing nature. Even though it's always there right in front of us, we lose sight of it. And then we attribute a kind of solidity to experience in the moment, right in the moment. A reality that it doesn't actually have. One time, uh, Andre and I went to the beach and it was near San Francisco and it was winter and was very stormy, a lot of wind and strong waves. And the waves were churning up the sea foam, you remember? <laughs> there was the sea foam and some of the blocks were as big as a, uh, they were big things, like, I don't know, as big as chest of drawers or even a small car, some of them. Big, big lumps of them and the wind was so strong and it was blowing parallel to the to the shore and these huge things would come like icebergs would come hurtling down the beach and then they would just go away. There was just nothing there. They were made of air. A little something, whatever foam is, foam is. But they looked, they were like so solid and they'd come rushing at you and then they'd just be gone. Nothing left but a little damp patch on the sand maybe. It was such a, a beautiful, Um, visual image of this something seeming so solid it was like if it would hit you it would knock you down but there was nothing there nothing at all we get so caught up in our experience and there seem like there's so many issues there so much that we have to consider and deal with and so much that we like and dislike and so much reactivity and wanting and not wanting. There must be something we have to do about it all. So much that's unacceptable somehow or other. We've got to work that stuff over somehow. In one teaching, the Buddha was asked if he could summarize all his teachings in one phrase. And he said, yeah, I can do that. Four words in Pali. Sabbe nadang abhini he said. Usually translated, nothing whatever is to be clung to. Sometimes it's translated, nothing clung, clung to as I, as me, as mine. And everything he taught, and everything any one of us might ever say, when we sit up here, is pointing to this teaching. So there's really only one Dhamma talk, just variations. Everything in service, the Buddha said, everything he taught then was in service of this understanding. Nothing is to be clung to. And then he emphasized the power of this teaching. He said, whoever had heard this had heard all of the teachings. Whoever had practiced this had practiced all of the teachings. And whoever had received the fruit of practicing this had received uh, all possible fruits of the practice. That's a strong statement. I mean, the teachings fill volumes and volumes. All trying to point this direction, always pointing at the same thing. So we could substitute identified with or held to for this nothing to be clung to. But the basic understanding, don't hold on to anything. Or you could say, let everything go, let everything be. This famous quotation from Ajahn Chah, speaking very simply and directly to this. Do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little bit, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. There's a refrain, a repeated uh, refrain that follows each set of instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta, this uh, basic teaching we've been referring to this whole retreat for our meditation instructions. And um, it's basically a summary of our, how we approach the practice, ways that we look at uh, any aspect of experience. And, and the very last line in this, last part of it says, after talking about different ways perceiving impermanence and uh, different things, um, said, and one abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. This pointing again to non-clinging as the key to freedom. In this case, it's described in terms of abiding independently, in terms of independence. I think it's important to get a sense for what the Buddha might have been uh, pointing to in using this speaking in this way. So, it's, this independence is is um, not some kind of removal or disconnection, separateness from the world, or divorced from life in some way. This abiding independently points to the possibility of a life where our well-being is not dependent. It's independent of the changing conditions, at least for the most part. So we live in the world. We are there. We're joyfully, fully in the world in different ways. But we don't ask the world of changing conditions, to provide something it is incapable of providing. We don't ask that it be the source of our lasting contentment, of our peace, of our okayness. And I remember when I used to read and hear this line, one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world, I thought, well, okay, comes at the end of that refrain, it's a description of the enlightened mind, you know, something down the road that one might aspire to. And there's a certain truce, perhaps, in, this, in, in the sort of most fullness of that possibility, independently abiding. But really, I see it as an instruction these days more and more, something we can practice. I actually put it into practice in the moment, right now. And we can't put this into practice. We can abide independently. We cannot cling and taste and touch this and so one way we might do that is through this um, turning to, tuning to the impermanent nature of things, the perception of impermanence. This is a quotation from a, a Thai teacher, Upasaka Ki Nanayon. She was a teacher um, in, in recent times, died in the 70s or 80s. A uh, very beautiful, powerful book uh, she wrote or was... I don't know if she wrote it, but it's, it's her words, called pure and simple. If you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch onto as having any real essence. Everything just disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They keep on flowing and they seem to involve many issues. But actually, there aren't many issues. There's really only arising, remaining, and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's really only just this, arising, remaining, and passing away, like a rippling current of water where the rippling isn't a thing at all. When we get lost, and caught up in the content of our experience, we fail to notice that it's just a flow of change. We, we lose sight of this quality of impermanence. And then we find ourselves relating to the flow of our experience from some form of identification so often. All the issues, the apparent issues there. Latching on to it. In some ways, upaska keys that way, latching on, grabbing hold. There seem to be a lot of issues, so much at stake, so much that we need to fix or deal with or try to control. But when we try to grasp onto any of it, it's like trying to hold onto moving water to a stream. We can't do it. It doesn't matter how hard we try, it slips away. Like Rebecca said the other no- night, it's It's like a a slipping rope. We try to hold on, we get rope burn, it hurts, and we wonder why. But as she was saying, if you're getting rope burn, the only solution is to let go. So in moments, we can take kind of a half step back, a softer gaze, you could say. And we might find we can look simply at the present moment as it arises and passes away, and just let it be. Let go. And we might taste this sense of an independent abiding right then, right there. A few more words from Upasaka Ki. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain, and pass away. The past has passed away. The future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the present arising and passing away right before your eyes and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining, passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment and then let go, that's when you gain release. A few years ago, I was uh, on retreat here, sitting in this hall, when uh, Venerable Sayadaw Utejaniya was teaching, and he would sit up here in the mornings and periodically something, he'd speak a little bit, something would come out of his mouth, these short reflections. And one morning he said something like this, it's not a direct quotation, but he said something like, awareness is your true home, you should stay home where you belong. And I related to that in the moment. I, it was as though I, I said, well, I, I just, I'll just stay here. I don't have to pick anything up. I don't have to reach out and pick it up. I'll just stay here. So if we have this sense of awareness, this trust in this quality of mindful awareness, and let our attention rest more with that, it can help to um, loosen, lighten up this compulsion we have to get so involved in, to latch onto, to try to control and fix what's happening. And we might discover in moments that there are times when nothing is clung to, nothing grasped at. We stay home where we belong. And we'll see experiences, this flow of context and knowing, context and knowing, over and over. And we just let it do its thing. It's going to do its thing anyway. Easier just to not get into conflict with that. We don't have to grasp it. We don't have to pick it up. We don't have to claim it as I, as me, as mine, as belonging to me. And we might touch and taste this independent abiding and right then, in the moment. Sometimes I've mentioned, suggested the possibility of sitting and just not doing anything. Letting go of doing, just being. So often, our sincere efforts can actually lead us in the direction of trying to make something happen. We fall into this habit, we're leaning on the moment in some way, trying to get something, get somewhere, have an insight or whatever. But if we take a time and just stop doing, let all practices go, Allow ourselves to be, just be. Do it right now. No agendas. Does anything change? Again, a practice that may uh, turn us towards this independent abiding. We can rest in the moment allow things to arise and cease. That's their nature. You don't have to make them change. And through this process, seeing them arise and then seeing them cease and pass away, it increases our trust and faith in this practice and process of not holding on, of letting go, of non-identification, in non-clinging to anything whatsoever, nothing whatever to be clung to. The heart, the whole of the teachings, as the Buddha said. It's from Ajahn Sumedho. As we keep keep reflecting on this, the tendency towards attachment falls away and the reality of non-attachment, of non-grasping, reveals itself and what we can say is nibbana. If we look at it this way, nibbana is here and now. It's not an attainment in the future. The reality is here and now. It is so very simple but beyond description. It cannot be dis- bestowed or even conveyed. It can only be known by each person for themselves. So this uh, reality of non-attachment, non-grasping in Ajahn Sumedha's words, again pointing to this possibility of abiding independently in a in an independence where the mind and the heart are in a state of non-agitation, non-struggle, non-contention. Not fighting against nature, against reality, against the truth of things, but really in alignment with it. And as this uh, state of non-struggle, non-agitation deepens, we touch that more and more. We relax into that in moments more and more. There are times when we touch into a deep balance of mind, a kind of profound balance, a profound kind of equanimity. At times it becomes very strong, a kind of high equanimity. When this is really strong and powerful. It's said to be similar to the mind of a fully enlightened being, similar to the mind of an arahant. The mind is unshakable, unassailable in the face of any aspect of experience. It's not moved. But it's not separate or apart. It's intimate. It's a deep intimacy. And it's said that it is this great stillness and clarity of mind that prepares the heart to let go into the unconditioned. There's a beautiful book called Breath by Breath that was written by Larry Rosenberg quite a long time ago now. He's the founder of the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. A few words from that book. At the heart of our practice, behind everything else, surrounded by everything else, within everything, is silence. Enlightenment has been called the great silence. And he goes on to say in another place, This silence is extremely shy. It appears when it wants to and comes only to those who love it for itself. It doesn't respond to calculation, grasping, or demand. It won't respond if you have designs on it or if there is something you want to do with it. It also doesn't respond to commands. You can no more command silence than you can command someone to love you. And there are moments when we get a taste of this, a touch into this deep silence. Sometimes we experience more as this deep stillness, as I was saying. And it's there all the time. It's like the stillness of the ocean beneath the waves. It's always still if you dive under the waves. Even if there's a huge storm going on, it's still under the waves. It's a stillness that is there that not, is not disconnected or in some state of denial or separation. The ocean and the waves are one thing. There's no layer between them. They are the same. The waves are the ocean. The ocean is the waves. So it's from a deep intimacy, deep connection, but it's a connection and intimacy that does not demand clinging, grasping, holding on. It's a stillness that's um, not separate from the movement of life, but in a certain way it's not changed or, un- or affected by it, like the ocean beneath the waves. So these are some words from T.S. Eliot taken from uh, the four quartets from the section called Burnt Norton, just a small excerpt from that. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. At the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance. And there is only the dance. I can only say there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a light still and moving. So we can let the words drift away. Sit quietly together. Watch the arising and falling of phenomena abide independently together, nothing to do, no one to be, nothing to get, nothing to get rid of, nowhere to go. So thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for your practice. And we have some time for walking meditation and the chanting at 9 p.m. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.